Welcome. This is the IFC's broadcast of the Individuation Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Sonia Mahmoud is with us today. She's going to tell us about herself. So, Sonia, tell us about who you are, Sonia. Hi, so I am a third-year medical student at Bastyr University. Um, I'm a native to Seattle, born and raised here. I'm from what we identify as is Middle Eastern, but it could be South Asian. I'm from Pakistan. Uh, I'm first-born, first-generation of immigrants. My parents moved here about 45 years ago, Um, and I'm the eldest, and I have a younger brother. So, Sonia, you... You are a Bastyr student. What did you do before Bastyr, by the way? So before coming to Bastyr, I was actually in the allopathic route and MD route for about nine months before I decided I wanted to be on the preventative side of medicine. So I switched over. Um, before that, I was in a master's program in which I was first into dentistry. Then I switched into medicine because I fell in love with neurology. And before that, I did my undergrad. So you started with dentistry first. What did you do in undergrad? Um, in undergrad, I did my prereqs for medical school. Um, but I ended up getting my BA in communications because I love to talk <laughs> and write <laughs> a lot. So what you're saying is that you... Shouldn't be in medical school? Uh, no, I think I should be in medical school because I can speak up um, about medical issues and bias that are around um, physicians and patients. And I can usually pick up if a patient's feeling a certain emotion that's not spoken about, and I'm very good at having them bring that emotion out. I think it's a very good quality that I have as a medical student. Um, I think being a communication major, you realize how per- people verbally and non-verbally communicate. And I think non-verbal communication actually is more important than verbal communication. Because if those two things don't align, that means that there's something wrong, for sure. And you are going to be with us on our first program at a school, at John Hay Elementary School. So tell us about what you are thinking. How are we going to... Um, go about that I think the school that we chose is interesting because they have a lot of children there that need I think emotional support and guidance regarding the type of actions they take and how they interact with each other and how they interact with someone with power of authority I think a lot of children come to school leaving problems at home so they'll lash out in school And I think having a little bit form of discipline, but freedom and thought would be very helpful for them. So that's why I chose to get involved. So this is also, we are also going to be introducing meditation and planting or what we call horticulture therapy. And it's how you end up learning about the earth and what grows from the earth and what we eat and where it comes from and how we treat other living things. So, let's talk about you a little bit. You are, you end up in communication and then you do something in dentistry. Why dentistry? How long did you do dentistry, by the way? 
Um, so my interest in dentistry was only up until undergrad. And then before I graduated from college, I got into my master's program. And then during my master's program is when I changed my mind completely. <laughs> you changed your mind. Yep. Tell me what that is. How did you do that? So I was in one of the hardest classes, they said, in the master's program, which was a neurology class. And the teacher was very standoff, didn't like to communicate with his students, wrote his own book because he didn't believe in the neuro book that was already written. Um, I took that on as a challenge. And I realized there's a lot more to the mind and body connection than to just teeth. And I had a feeling I was going to get really bored. So I switched over to neurology. I was in the lab twice the amount of time as everybody else. I showed up to class previewing the lecture from two days before. So in class, I was basically relearning. I never opened the book. So everything I learned, I learned it verbally, which came from my communications degree. Um, I learned by what he said in auditory visual. Um, so I think I think my bachelor's degree for that. Um, and then I realized all the neurology I wanted to learn how to do with the brain and only one or two nerves went to the face. Everything else went to the body. And I decided I wanted to be a physician. So you started and you think it started because of your bachelor's degree. It's not a gift that you have that you are um, not able to identify, is it? Being able to pick up. Uh, verbal and social cues very quickly, integrate them, process them, and respond without uh, reading? No, I think it's a huge part of my personality. I'm a very extroverted individual, and I'm the eldest. So I think I was trained to keep track of everything around me because I was taking care of my brother, who now takes care of me, so that doesn't make any sense anymore. But I was used to, it was only my brother and I at home, so I would pay attention to everything to make sure... Everything was fine for my brother who was younger. And the way I was raised to learn everything on my own. So if I messed up, I had to learn how to correct it before I presented it to my parents. And I think picking up on social cues and communicative cues helped a lot. So as being the oldest sibling. Yeah, for sure, being the older sibling, yeah. Being the oldest sibling has a lot of demands. Being yeah. Being the oldest child, you are... Uh, parents experiment yeah. if you fail they fail it's a big thing that you carry it is but my my brother took over when I moved for college so I got treated like a princess after that but I think being older if you make a mistake um, you have to fix it figure it out and then you tell your parents what happened you can't go to your parents and tell them I made a mistake they're gonna be like what did you do to fix it so that was my house um, and then if your sibling makes a mistake, you also get in trouble. So then you have to figure out how to speak up for them. So I think learning how to speak up for myself and somebody else who was in trouble probably groomed me a little bit for my degree. So um, you're talking about the social emotional interaction between you and your parents for many, many years. So you learned certain things from them, expectations, that they taught you that you needed to perform. But it sounds like from what you are saying and what I hear you saying is that a lot of this came very easily for you. It wasn't like a big challenge 
to fix things for yourself. That's what we call, usually that's, that's what we call our gift. Our gift is, and what would your gift be? What would you call it? Um, should I put it in one word or like a sentence? Uh, you could put it as many words as you like, but uh, I... explain it to people. Let them understand that we all have individual gifts that sometimes we take for granted. And we think other people are the source of the gift when it's actually inherent in us. I think, I think my personality, I'm very outspoken. Whether something's good or bad, I will speak up about it. Mm. Um, I don't have any fear. Um, and I think that's a big thing. I'm pretty much not scared of anything. Um, if I'm presented with a difficulty, I usually try to work it out on my own. I'll ask for help if I need it. Even if I'm scared, I'll try, to, I'll try to work through the process on my own before asking for help. But I think being fearless sets you up for learning more. There's a lot of time I've been fearful and I've done the wrong thing or I've made a mistake. So I think that fear translates into having courage to being like, okay, I messed up and I need to redo this and do it the right way. I think that's one part, part of my personality that has kind of guided me in the place I wanted to go. Another part I think is I don't like seeing people suffer. So I think that's huge in medicine. I think medicine isn't, shouldn't be about like throwing medication at people, having them come in, getting paid for your work. I don't think half the people would be physicians if they got paid or if they didn't get paid. And it wouldn't matter to me if I got paid or not. And that's probably a really big statement to make, but that's not why I'm in the profession. And I think that's a huge part of my personality. And I think I get that from my dad, because my dad's, he, he gives, he never asks for anything in return. And I think I get it from him. So he passed on that gene to me, probably. Well, probably you both have a way of giving that's very different. Your father does not give the way you give. He's not the doctor, right? Right, What yeah. does your father do? So he's a business owner. Mm. He owns a restaurant. Mm. Um, Do you want to tell our listeners the name of the restaurant just in case? Yeah, sure. He hates publicity, but mm -hmm. that's okay. Sorry, Dad. Mm -hmm. um, it's Cafe Zoom Zoom in downtown Seattle. Uh, we've been there for about 30 years now. Um, and thank God he's, he does great. Everybody loves him. Mm. Everybody knows him there. And I think he, the form in which I've seen my dad give is not only just with owning a restaurant and cooking is... He has a lot of, in all of downtown populations, there's plenty of people who don't have money and who are homeless who come around to the restaurants and asking for stuff. My dad will never turn anybody down. And he, he'll never ask them for money or anything in return. My dad, he'll, he'll just get them food. And he doesn't take it as a negative thing. He thinks it's more embarrassing to just let those people walk by. Or if you see somebody going through the garbage or something like that, which also happens in downtown a lot apparently, my dad will always get the food. So he's a very generous man and he feels yes. for the other. It's, it's karma. You take care of others and others will always take care of you. Yeah, so I think the whole homeless population probably knows my dad too. <laughs> they all know him. Mm. Once his phone got stolen by one homeless person, mm. the other one kicked his butt and brought the phone back. So, you know, I think my dad's in <laughs> good graces with them. Well, that's great. That's great that... Uh, your father is a very generous and giving person. So what happened to you in your first medical school? But uh, you started a medical school program before Bastyr, so 
Yeah, so I got into medical school straight out of the program. Um, and I got into three different medical schools, but a lot of them don't take student loans. And um, I wanted everything to be like student loans are either assigned to your parents or to you at a certain age. And I was able to take them onto my name. I didn't want to put them on my dad's name. And I also didn't want to pay straight cash for medical school because I couldn't. So I chose to go um, to Seba University, which is one of the U.S. recognized medical schools out in the Caribbean, um, which was a great experience. I met a lot of people there in my class who came there simply because they didn't get into the U.S. schools. And it seemed like a great idea at the time. Um, I was there for about nine months, but I was not happy about the system and the system being not the school, but the allopathic system. We were learning how to treat people when they were sick. And I wanted to learn how to benefit an individual so that on the daily they're able to do things that prevent them from getting to the ER or prevent them to getting to the hospital or from getting chronic diseases. Um, so yeah, I my mind changed while I was there. A lot of life happened. My parent, I my I remember my parents had gotten sick at some point, and I was not in the emotional space to handle the type of schooling that I was in, and handle um, family members being ill. But I think I just wasn't meant to be there. I think all those things in combination just didn't sit well. So. Um, I left. So after you left, you said a couple of things before we go on to Bastyr. Oh, and I didn't just leave. I didn't just leave. I didn't just leave. They had told me I passed. It's been a while now. So I passed my board exams for the first year of med school. And then it was the in-class exams to one or two of them. It was like 0.06%. I had fallen under which was obvious because I was not in any emotional state to be in school at that point. Um, So they told me that I could restart the nine months in school or I could leave, which in technical terms is called academic dismissal. And I told them, I was like, I'm going to appeal the decision. This is crazy. Like I'm a smart kid, but I wasn't meant to be there and they didn't grant me my appeal. So I actually didn't have a choice, but it worked out in my favor because as soon as I left, I felt freedom. As soon as I left the island. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. So you said a couple of things about how medicine was only meant to be treating people who are sick. Isn't medicine supposed to be treating people who are sick? I think, so, medicine is meant to be there, I think to serve people in both in both cases. Yes, when people are sick, acute or chronic, definitely it's meant to be there. Um, long-term diseases for sure. But there's this whole aspect of medicine now that they're calling it green allopathic medicine, which is basically the profession that I'm in now, which is naturopathic medicine. So what we look at is how can you ensure determinants of health in an individual to make sure that their body stays in homeostasis so they don't end up developing these conditions or these diseases or autoimmune diseases. Or if they have a malabsorption issue, 
why are they not getting better? There must be something else that's going on that we can cater to. And I think the reason why people say naturopaths take forever for doing an intake is because we're responsible for the entire body and not just a problem that's in a certain system. So say you have chronic kidney failure. I'm not just going to look at your kidney. I'm going to look at how much you sleep, how much you eat, what do you drink, what's your current stressors, what's your diet like, are you exercising, what medications do you take, how is that altering your determinants of health, um, emotional, social stressors, how do you go your day-to-day basis, um, what your work life is like. And then supplements, not to say that people need supplements, but supplements to balance the any type of adrenal or mental dysfunction that ha- is a result of not having enough of those neurotransmitters, for example. So I think it's more about prevention and bringing a body into a set point rather than treating just symptoms and not dealing with the root cause of why someone's sick. Because someone could be sick because they're stressed out, because they don't have enough money. If you go through finances or emotional support and you bring someone into a level where they feel like they're loved, cared for, and they have support, most of their stress will just subside. And I think the medication won't be needed and won't work anymore because it has no reason to work. There's no, there's no problem. So I think that's the part of medicine I wanted to be at. I didn't want to, I can, I can see myself having patients who are, need adjunctive care for oncology. I've gone to enough conferences to know how to deal with that. I'm not going to be their oncologist. I never will be, but I will be the doctor that they can go to, to deal with the side effects that they're having from chemo and side effects that prevent them from doing their daily activities. And that's where I want to be. I want to make sure that they're happy when they get up, that they're happy when they go to sleep. They don't feel dragged and they don't feel like they are missing out on life. And I think that's the part of medicine that I wanted to be at. And I think most people are realizing that that's what they want to do. They want to have quality of life. And I think being an allopathic physician was not orienting me in a place that I felt like I could flourish. So naturopathic medicine is treating um, the human being's ecosystem, the entire ecosystem. It's not just treating um, the kidney as you were talking about, if somebody was having kidney failure, but the entire system, the person. So the person as a system, tell me more about how you see as a naturopath a person as a system. So I think... This is where my neurology geek side comes out. But I think a lot of things, if you're, so say you come sick and you get the cold um, and you're like, oh my God, I got my flu shot. I still got the cold. Well, no one really knows if you got the flu or you got the cold. But is that the point? The point is that your immune system was shot. Why is your immune system down? Have you not been sleeping? No, I've been sleeping. Have you been eating? Great, what have you been eating? And you're not eating the right quantity of nutrients. Maybe that's a problem. Problem is how much water we have. Oh, I had three cups of coffee. I have two bottles of water. That's not enough. Your body needs more than that. Your body's filled with five liters worth of liquid. That has to be run off of something. It's definitely water. It's your blood. And I think, The balance of nutrients and hydration enough in your body would keep someone at homeostasis. If you don't have enough of that and you go two, three days without sleep, 
without proper nutrients, without hydration, your body's going to tank. It doesn't have the immunity to keep up. And your body tries to keep up with you every day. So I think just like we fill up gas in our car, it's like that you have to fill up your body with the nutrients, with the hydration it needs to run robustly, to run like your Mercedes and BMW. You need your body to be able to run like that every day. And if you want it to run like that every day, you have to learn to take care of it. And I think that's where naturopathic people come in handy because they give you the tools to understand like if you're stressed out, there's counseling for that. There's mental health counseling for that. Mental health is not, it's not a defect. And I think a lot of people have been put in a category where they don't talk about it because they think it's a defect. I would be the first one to say coming from a background of being Pakistani, more people need to talk about mental health. That's one sector. Nutrition, people are like, oh yeah, just eat your veggies and fruits. No one really knows what's in your veggies and fruits. So that's why you have naturopathic people to tell you these are the vitamins that are in there. These are the minerals that are in there. These are the vitamins that help your eyes, your skin, your kidneys. These are the minerals that keep your blood protein levels normal to help carry nutrients around. There's, I think there's a lot of aspects of that that people don't realize have to do with naturopathic medicine. And I think connecting your body with your mind, neurologically, your nerves run off of vitamins. So if you don't have vitamins and nutrients, you're... You know, you can have numbness and tingling for no reason. You can have vision problems. You can start losing your hair. You, your body doesn't move as fast as you think it was moving, or you think you're moving faster than you're actually moving. That all has to do with your musculoskeletal system that's wired by the nerves that come from your brain. So your brain does control your body. So the mind-body relationship, it's, it's in- inevitable. If one lacks, the other one lacks. And I think naturopathic physicians are very good at treating both of those, hence the whole system. So, naturopathic medicine helps us understand different parts of what we eat, how we eat it, how we ingest. And since we are talking on the Individuation Podcast, this is also about integration. It's how we integrate our diet, um, our life, our physical well-being, and our, um, in our life. Yeah. I think, yeah, Um, I think being able to deal with stress is, (laughs) no one wants to talk about it. Everybody's stressed out. I think that's like, I think a lot of physicians make money because people are stressed out. It's either stress or pain. But pain manifests more severely and intensely if you think about it. That's one aspect. That's the neurological aspect. Pain also worsens if you think about the pain you were in the other day because you have sensory neurons that go to that area and they'll be like okay you're thinking about it let's remember what it feels like people don't really remember that it's your brain doing a recall i think if you distract that person in pain for five minutes they're not going to feel pain you bring around their favorite grandkid they're not going to feel pain when they're looking at their grandkid because that's not where their mind wants to go i think life stressors are huge and their people don't pay enough attention to them and I think people people as in us this is me included we don't take enough time out for ourselves to either just I think being able to vent um, even if it's to yourself I think being able to write things out being able to talk to a friend thinking it's okay to write things out thinking it's okay to talk to a friend 
taking care of ourselves, which most people say, I don't have the time. I think everybody has time before they go to sleep to reconvene or recollect your thoughts. Um, Meditate, people say they don't have time, but you don't have to meditate for longer than a minute. Even a minute brings your body an awareness to redirect itself to its body. And I think if you, even if you have a minute, it's, I think that's really important. And I think people who say that they don't have time and they have busy lives, and those are the people who need it the most, usually. And usually that's the working population, which is most of America. <laughs> so I think we could all benefit from one minute of just, you don't even have to talk to anybody. Maybe you just need to sit there in silence. Maybe that's your meditation. Well, let's talk about meditation. Yeah. What what does what what is happening during meditation from a naturopathic perspective? So during meditation, so we have these two systems that are set up in our body. Um, one is fight or flight, which is sympathetic mode, which everybody's it's like New York. Everybody's running around, getting work done, always going on to the next task, the next thing not taking a break, not taking time to calm down. It's as if you're running away from the bear. But the body is designed for that mode to only be on if you're running away from a bear. But we have that mode on all the time. As if we're running in the wild, we're not running in the wild. We don't need to be running around like that. We actually could benefit from walking to the same place we're running to. So then we have this other side, which is the parasympathetic parasympathetic side. Um, And that's when meditation comes in. So meditation takes you out of your fight or flight mode, the sympathetic mode, and brings you into your parasympathetic mode. So it gets your musculoskeletal system and your breathing to slow down. It's one nerve, the vagus nerve, tells your heart like, hey, we're going to chill out for a second. So let's breathe a little deeper and let's breathe slower. And we're not running away from everybody, so we can digest a little now since we haven't been digesting all day, um, and we can relax. And then all the neurotransmitter that's responsible for the parasympathetic mode, they're released. And during meditation, that's why people feel calm. So the calmness that uh, people are feeling is because of the vagus nerve? It's the vagus nerve is being intact, yeah. And where is the vagus nerve? For those who don't know where vagus is. So the vagus nerve um, can't actually be found on your body. It's going to be, it's one of the cranial nerves, cranial nerve 10, and it's going to be coming from your brain, and it wraps around um, through your brain. It comes down to your body. Its response, its major responsibility is to tap into these two modes. So this nerve is the one that's responsible for you running after that bus. And this nerve is also responsible for you wanting to go to sleep. It's the one that gets you out of one system and puts you into the other. Um, And it's responsible for your heart rate. Um, It's also responsible for your breathing. So baroreceptors, chemoreceptors, these chemoreceptors pick up on these chemicals and electrolytes in your body that tell your body you need to breathe faster or slower. Baroreceptors will pick up on the amount of oxygen that you're getting. So... It's, it's a sensory system. So this nerve has a sensory component and an active component. So it'll bring in the sensory and then it'll change according to what you want it to do. So, so, so the meditation is a form of resetting yourself, is it? Tell me more about what happens 
during meditation to the body so our listeners can understand how it helps. So when you're in the, when you say you sit down to meditate and you start with your breathing, breathing is big. Once your body recognizes how much oxygen it's getting in your respiratory rate, your vagus nerve right away will send a signal to your brain like, hey, she's breathing a little slower. Let's breathe a little deeper. Let's slow down the heart rate because there's no reason for her heart rate to be high right now. So the rest of the body responds by going into your musculoskeletal system. Your muscles that are innervated by the nerves that come from your brain will tell your muscles to relax. Like, hey, you're calm. Seems like you're in a calm state. We can relax. So these are your skeletal muscles and your cardiac muscle um, and your smooth muscle because we have three types. Smooth muscle primarily in your stomach digestive system. When people tell you to breathe from your stomach, it's trying to coordinate these nerves with those muscles. So your muscles will relax. And when people say they're in a zen state, that means that this system has been basically hijacked by your uh, vagus nerve and your muscles are relaxed, you're able to breathe more deeply, um, your heart rate's slower. It's basically as if you're like uh, almost like about to go to sleep when your body's in calm mode. So it's a little bit like that. So how do we reach a Zen state if um, we meditate, what, once a week, twice a week? What, what would you recommend? So since... I haven't graduated yet. <laughs> I'm not going to give direct well, advice. We're, we're, but... not, we're not asking you as Dr. Sonia yet. We will. <laughs> but uh, for now, we're asking you about what you think happens. So... Your understanding. I think um, a lot of people have said, oh yeah, you should meditate every day. That's not realistic for anyone, I think. When you start out, I think being able to keep a goal of meditating once a week is more than enough a minute a week is more than enough um and i think that's only one part of it setting a goal the other part of it is to figure out how you like to meditate is your meditation walking by the water or is your meditation sitting in a room without anybody else there and sitting in silence or is your meditation writing things out journaling or is your meditation listening to music that helps you it could be metal heavy rock whatever alternative music but is it the type of music that helps you collect your thoughts and it gives you the point of, I think the point of meditation if you're doing it once a week or even a minute is to bring clarity to yourself like where am I right now how do I feel why do I feel that way and is there anything that I need to do to make myself feel better and I think that's the point of meditation is what can I do with my mind and body in present self state to feel the most optimal and I think most people forget like oh yeah you got to meditate so so that you could sleep so that you could feel calm yes but meditation it's more important to recognize how you're feeling and not judging yourself for it so self-judgment is huge America is great about helping you judge yourself you judge yourself every day what you look like what you wear how you talk to people, what you talk to people about, what you drive, what backpack you have, what iPhone you have, what's your case on your iPhone, who is your doctor, why their doctor, what hospital do you go to, what school do you go to, what degree do you have. It's 
I think all of that's important and that's great. That's first world thinking. But if you go back into a third world country or anywhere outside of America, to be frank, America or Canada, say we go to South America, say we go to Venezuela, where healthcare and the whole system is shot right now. You go there and you ask people what makes you happy or what would make you content. These people will not say like, oh, I need more money or um, I need to have this grand car or I need to have this big house. These people will tell you that their instincts are proper mammalian instincts. They want food, enough to feel full. They want to drink water that's clean and they want to make sure that the kids have the same. And I think that's, a, that's not a human thing, that's a mammalian thing. So meditation brings you back to your mammalian instincts. It helps you calm those instincts down. So things like thirst, hunger, desire, anxiety, stress, those are not human instincts. Those are mammalian instincts. And this nervous system that we try to tap into by yoga, yin, zen, you're trying to get your body to realize like, yo, I'm a mammal. Like I'm the same as a killer whale. I'm the same as that dolphin. I'm the same as that bear. The only difference is that I'm vocalizing about all of this. And I think it's, it's important to understand that we're not doing magic. Naturopathic people are not doing magic. We're just helping you realize like your mammalian instincts are the ones that drive the rest of your body. So if you have those calm down and you bring them back to baseline, I think the rest of your body will follow and it will listen because that's how we're designed. So we're talking about the lizard brain. I think we talked about this in um, the episode with Dr. Ann Blake and how the lizard brain takes over and how it, uh, by the essence of it taking over, it drives us to raise our heartbeat, raise our anxiety, raise our um, survival instincts to deal with being out in nature where we might be killed by animals. Now, we don't have animals. We have mm-hmm. cars. Mm-hmm. We have planes. We have boats. We have people on bicycles. We have people on bicycles that are electric. We have motorcycles. We have people on a wheel who are standing there and flying by. So we're no longer um, dodging the cheetahs Mm -hmm. and the panthers in the world. But what we are doing is we're dodging life. Right. So that's why it keeps kicking back in. Right. Because people don't understand that. They say, well, why is my lizard brain reacting if I am not in the forest? So we, our mind develops a habit to deal with every situation that you encounter the mind has a very good way of keeping track of situations that have scared you put you in fear or made you feel like you needed to either stay in that situation or leave that situation stress is a huge trigger for that so what happens is your body becomes used to being constantly triggered by stress which leads to your adrenals being overrun So your adrenal gland, which sits right on top of your kidney, which is a little tiny little gland that everybody forgets about, 
that's responsible for cortisol. That spike in cortisol happens when you get scared, when you get stressed. Your mind's like, oh, I'm stressed, I have a test. I'm stressed, I need to get on that bus. Your adrenal get a cue from your brain that you need to secrete that cortisol. What does that cortisol do? It's gonna go ahead and break down things in your body to make sure you have a burst of energy. But if you're continuously triggering your adrenals, now you're dealing with adrenal fatigue. You're constantly stressed. Our body is not set to be constantly stressed. You have so many other organs in your body and you're only limiting one to do all of the jobs that everybody else to do together. You're gonna get tired and you're gonna have chronic problems. You're gonna have acute problems that are turning into chronic problems. You can have systemic problems. You can have autoimmunity problems because your body is consistently stressed. So a lot of people talk about how anxiety, depression, um, even obesity, diabetes, a lot of adrenal um, problems, comorbidities, cancers, how they develop, a lot of them start with being chronically stressed. And I think that's why now America's realizing that we can't be this way all the time. You need to do yoga, you need to meditate, you need to get yourself out of that state at least once a day if you can, but if you're not, at least consistently once a week maybe to get your body to know what it feels like to be calm. Because if you're constantly stressed out, that's not gonna be good for your body or for anybody else around you. And I think that's where a lot of the medical problems come in. So the oxygen is telling your brain that um, you can relax because yeah. you are breathing. Yeah. You are not sipping breaths or <laughs> panting. Right. You are breathing. And because you are breathing, your brain is like, oh, we could take a time out. Yeah. And that's how the meditation begins. Yep. has to do with your oxygen. has to do with the electrolytes that are flowing through in your blood. But you're not going to get the electrolytes if you're not getting the nutrients either. Because nutrients feed, so it's, it's what you're eating as well and what you're drinking. You can bring your body into a Zen state, but in order to get your body to come down from very stressed out every day to moderately stressed out, the meditating is only half the job. The other half is what are you doing every day at home to make sure you can stay moderately stressed versus chronically stressed. I think that's the difference. So we're talking about getting enough sleep, getting uh, the right nutrition, yeah. making sure that our diet is rich with what type of foods? So everything colorful. I always tell everybody everything colorful. So it's not about, um, so everybody knows about like the healthy plate. Healthy plate is having a certain amount of protein, carbs, and a little bit of fat. So all your good fats. Everybody knows about the Mediterranean diet, but I think carbs and protein should not be. A lot of people have these diets where intermittent fasting or like eliminating carbs or eliminating uh, meat or for some people who are vegetarians, it's very hard for them to get protein. So they, they're actually a lot smarter than a lot of other people because they're vegetarian. They've figured out a way to get protein without getting meat. So those are the people that you go to when you need a lot of protein because they're plant-based proteins, which are very clean. Sometimes the animal protein is not always clean. So, but knowing the amount of protein and carbs and healthy fats you need to have in your plate, that's where you start. And from there, there's so many blogs, 
there's so many handouts and stuff that people will give you. But what I would tell people is you, your, your plate has to look like the colors of the rainbow. That's when you know you're doing it right. It can't be all the same color. If it's a different color, that means it's a different vitamin. That means it's a different mineral. That means that's a different thing that your body's going to digest. And that's the best thing that I would tell anybody. And that's the simplest way to describe it, I think. Have a little bit of rice, have a little bit of protein, and have everything else be the color of the rainbow on your plate, which is not the unicorn drink from Starbucks. It's not the unicorn drink? No, it's not. Okay. Not None of the drinks from Starbucks. <laughs> are, are they not on the list? Of they're not. They're the, not. The, uh, the color circle? No. I'm a Seattle native, so mm. I'm sorry, Starbucks. But you can have their drip coffee. Oh, okay. You can have a latte okay. with your milk. We're not against Starbucks. We're not. So, um, coming from Seattle, and because we drink so much coffee around Yeah, I drink coffee every day. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, this is very interesting. I think to our listeners, this is very interesting, because I am interested in what you're saying. You're giving me a perspective that, um, you know, I think about in different ways. So, I think about meditation as part of the individuation process, because meditation helps us reclaim our thoughts. Yeah, yeah. It helps us bring out, bring back those emotions and feelings that have been split off from us during the day. Our anger, our pessimism, our irritation, our um, helplessness, our sense of not being taken care of, our sense of not being connected to. This is a way of connecting with the self. Yeah, exactly. So tell me about how naturopaths, because um, I train, I supervise all of you in doing counseling. Um, How do naturopathic students um, understand the counseling process? Because you have to do a year of coursework as counseling student at naturopathic students, and then you have to do uh, counseling rotations. You do two counseling rotations. You're doing a counseling internship mm-hmm. uh, on top, or what do they call that? Preceptorship. Yeah, preceptorship. Um, so, at the time when we're taught counseling, we don't really know what's happening because we didn't know that it was part of our scope of practice. Um, but it is. So naturopathic physicians are actually trained in counseling. Um, they, re- they don't refer to it as counseling. They refer to it as behavioral health. Um, and the reason why they call it behavioral health is it's tapping in to mental health of individuals that lead to behavioral changes in their lives. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is a lot of mental health has to do with how people behave. It's not necessarily tagged as oh he's depressed or oh he's anxious it's what's causing that person to be depressed or anxious and how what behaviors do they manifest in order to deal with that depression or anxiety and I think because we're taught counseling in that format we're able to recognize like okay if this person's depressed how do they go through their day-to-day living who do they interact with? Who do they not interact with? What do they eat? What do they drink? Do they sleep? Do they leave the house? Do they not leave the house? Like, how does a depressed person be, behave? And then a lot of what we recognize is a lot of people conceal the behaviors. 
So if they are depressed, they are anxious, they or they're upset, or they're sad, um, or they have OCD, a lot of people want to mask the behavior that's actually a part of being depressed, which could be not leaving the house, which could be not being socially active. A lot of people will mask that behavior so that other people don't find out. So they'll be overly happy or they'll be overly social and you would never know that the person's depressed. So the only way I think to tap into that mental health picture, what we've learned in counseling is to ask people why they do what they do and does that fulfill their day and does that fulfill their happiness and if they're not able to answer those questions or those answers are conflicting then you know that there's something else underlying going on that's driving their behavior and the other thing we learned in counseling is behavior change does not happen over a day over two days over a week or two weeks it definitely takes they say a set point of about 30 days to develop a new habit this includes an emotional and behavioral habit so someone who's been depressed for 10 years is not gonna change their habits within two or three weeks. It's gonna take them months and it's gonna take them a step at a time. It might take them a year, but if you're seeing them consistently every single week for a year, that person's gonna be able to unload and give you an insight into their life as to why they felt like they needed to be depressed and if they feel like they want to make a change. So the other thing we learned about behavioral health um, and counseling is a lot of patients aren't ready to change. They're like, I've been doing this for 10 years. No one gives a shit about me. I don't want to change. That's fine. We're not there to force people to change. We're there to help them recognize that their behavior is a certain way. And there is another behavior that they can do to make sure that their day-to-day is healthy. So if someone's telling me, I'm going to smoke because that's my de-stressor, that's fine. If that's your de-stressor, that's fine. Is there something you could do in the place of smoking that can still help you feel de-stressed? That's where I think counseling comes in. Helping people realize that there are other tools and other therapeutic ways to deal with stress and it doesn't have to be a way that's detrimental to their body. And I think getting people to that might take a few months, might take a year. But if you're a physician and a counselor who cares about your patient, you're gonna be with them there every single week for that year to make sure like, hey, they stopped smoking, but now we're gonna see if they wanna do something else to replace that desire. And I think that's where counseling comes in. And I, that's the model that we've been taught, which I think is called the ACT model. Um, in school, we've been taught that, that model specifically. So what we are trying to say is that people need um, the help with certain behavioral changes to help with their overall health. Without the behavioral changes, there is no change in overall health because we get in ourselves way. We lie about why we are, what we are doing and how we are doing it because mental health issues are not as accepted in society as they should be. Right. Yeah, I don't think I I am happy that I'm in, I'm in a country now that we have access to care like this cuz back home like in in Pakistan and India this, these stuff are this stuff is not talked about. It's not recognized and people are like, "Oh, this person's sad or upset all the time. They're 
getting more chronically ill, um, they don't vocalize how they feel. And I feel like if a lot of people just sat in a room and vocalized about how they felt and why they felt that way, and people recognize, like, this person's upset, let's understand, let's just give them five minutes to talk about why they're upset, that would go a long way. That person would probably be able to sleep at night instead of bottling it up. Or a woman who wants to work and she's not able to work because her job's in a location in the city where it's not safe. So she studied for 10 years and now she's not able to work. That person's going to be depressed. She, I mean, if I, I've been studying for 10 years, if someone told me you can't work, I'd be like, you're crazy. I want to work. Like, I'm going to work. I don't care what you say. But if I was in Pakistan, I wouldn't be able to say that because it's a matter of me being able to get back home safely. And if I can't do that, I'm not going to go to work. So in, and these people don't have an avenue to discuss that and talk about, like, I'm educated, but I'm not allowed to work because I'm scared. And that fear can develop into masking other type of behaviors that show up at home, that show up how you raise your kids. And I think counseling isn't about fixing people, I think. It's about letting people tell their story, letting them vent. Let them talk about why they're mad. Maybe they're not able to talk about it at home. Like, if they're able to talk about it, it's going to be a huge release. And if they're able to talk about it, are they able to talk about it consistently with you to see if there's anything they can change about their situation, even if it's minute. I think that's what counseling is, helping people just vent and giving them a space where they feel safe to do so. So these are the pieces we are trying to bring together in counseling, are the pieces of everyday existence, how we exist in the world, how we walk around, how we see ourselves, how we don't see ourselves. Do you want to talk a little bit about how we don't see ourselves and the way we should see ourselves? I think the way we, the way others see us is what we see in the mirror. So if you look in the mirror, you're like, okay, this is how everybody else sees me. But most people don't see you at all. I think you have an inner roommate and that roommate is talking all the time They're like the worst roommate ever. They're talking all the time. They take over your thoughts. They tell you you're hungry when you're not. Do you really need that cake? Yeah, I can have that cake. Or it's all emotionally driven. So I think a part of mental health and how we walk through life, I think a lot of people don't take a second to think about what they're about to do or what they're about to say or how it's going to affect someone else, how it's going to affect them. Like, is this decision I'm about to make, is it going to help make me feel better? great is it going to be detrimental to somebody else people don't do that and i think the real struggle is allowing people to see your inner roommate and being okay with that i have an inner roommate my inner roommate wants to work in the er and do surgery all the time but i'm not going to do that and is that what i really want to do no what i really want to do is be able to help people recognize a part of their body that might be deficient at that time and it needs to learn how to cope. To me, surgery isn't about cutting people open and fixing it. That's logistically what it is. But am I able to do that in another avenue? Am I able to do that at a speed that the patient wants? That's what surgery and ER mean to me. And I tell people all the time, they're like, oh my God, you'd be a great allopathic physician. And I'm like, no, I think I'd just be a good physician. And I don't think it has to do with being in surgery or not. It has to do with me wanting to keep up with the pace that my patient wants to be at. And I think that's why I look at the ER and surgery and those things are appealing to me. But if somebody else said it, they'd be like, oh yeah, you probably want to be a surgeon. 
hell no, I don't want to be a surgeon. <laughs> so I think it's interesting. People don't see that part of you because you don't vocalize it. And I think if you do vocalize it, people would be, people would have more open conversations with each other. So I think, Sonia, you've been fascinating to talk to today. And you have so much to say about naturopathic medicine and counseling. I think this is a conversation that um, is required in society. I really hope that more people start talking about these things and start talking about naturopathic medicine. I think naturopathic medicine is a way forward. It's an advance in many ways. It's a very old science that's come back into vogue, but um, definitely needed at this time. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah, I think a lot of people are, they're realizing the medicine isn't doing the job. So a lot of physicians now send referrals over to naturopathic physicians because they're like, we don't know what to do. Nothing's changing. Nothing's going to change if you don't know what the cause is. And I think that's where we come in. Well, thank you so much, Sonia, today for that enlightening conversation that we had. Um, thank you for joining the Individuation Podcast. This is the IFC, the Institute for Conflict. I am Dr. Lahab Al-Samurai, and this is another episode of the IFC's Individuation Podcast. Thank you, and join us again.